So just trying to remind you that the uh, replication fork looks something like this, where five prime to three prime and five prime to three prime. This is what's known as the leading strand uh, because DNA, the synthesis of the new strand can go which is going 5 prime to 3 prime is going in the same direction as the movement of the replication fork. Uh, the other strand which is known as the lagging strand, the DNA synthesis is actually going backwards to the um, to the movement of the replication fork, which means it has to go and then start up here and go again, and it's continually jumping. And I told you that their little RNA primer is used to start each strand, and then DNA, the DNA polymerase is able to elongate that. And then at the end, these little uh, nicks in here, the, the RNA has to be removed, fill in the gap, and then it's sealed up by the enzyme DNA ligase, which we'll talk about when we uh, talk about recombinant DNA. I'd, someone asked, I'd mentioned uh, why this strategy of using RNA was, was beneficial, and that has to do with the fact that the fidelity, which is going to be the next thing I'm going to focus on of, of DNA replication, is not, you can get a much higher accuracy if you have it, uh, the end of a primer already there and then carry out the, the chemistry in there. No enzyme has ever achieved the accuracy of, uh, that you see in DNA replication if it's starting a strand. So RNA polymerase, which constantly starts strands to make RNA copies, as we'll talk about, is not as accurate as DNA replication. And by using, putting a little bit of RNA, because the cell has to start a new strand, before it, it's, it gets here, there's no strand at all on this lagging strand, so it needs to make this little RNA primer, may, needs to make a little primer, and it may, by making it out of RNA, then it can tell what, isn't, what doesn't belong there. It doesn't matter if it's not quite as accurate as the rest of DNA replications, because it's going to take it out anyway and fill it in using a DNA polymerase. And if you think about that, maybe you can see one of the reasons that the cell has chosen, or nature has chosen, through evolution to use little RNAs to begin the, to begin the strands. Okay. Well, anyway, in any case, the fidelity is a, of DNA replication is, is really uh, uh, pretty amazing. Incidentally, just speaking of DNA, many of you wrote some very thoughtful things about uh, Vernon Ingram's visit. He'd had to, I didn't give him a whole lot of warning. <laughs> And he had to go and change his schedule and move meetings around in order to come to talk to you. And it was very nice of you. Many of you wrote some very thoughtful things, which I'm going to pass on to him. I want him to know that uh, many of you appreciated his visit. I also saw a lot of you reacted to his advice about crowded labs. But that has been my experience, too. I think one thing about the scientific process is it's not just one person. You're in with a group of people, just as Vernon described, and that group of people becomes the creative engine that drives all the science within that lab. And so you're not only picking a project, you're looking for a group of people to work in. And if, as Vernon said, if, if the lab is really doing hot stuff, they tend to, <laughs> they tend to, to, to uh, attract 
a lot of people. So a crowded lab can sometimes be a really good indicator. Um, no absolutes, and there's an exception to everything, but that was a good piece of advice he gave you if you're looking for your ops sometimes. Um, okay, so anyway, DNA fidelity. Remember I said we've gone from our bodies have somewhere like 10 to 20 billion miles of DNA in them if we could take all the human DNA and stretch it out. But that fidelity is done at a, a, an error rate of about one mistake to every 10 to the minus 10th uh, nucleotides replicated, which I said if you were typing all the time would be like sort of making one mistake every 38 years. So it's an astonishing degree of fidelity, something that's beyond anything within our experience. And there are three principles uh, that, that go. One is the polymerase is very good at the base pair recognition, telling that an A is paired the T or a G is paired with a C and discriminating against everything else. There's a phenomenon known as proofreading, and I'll tell you how that works. And then there's a third system called mismatch repair. And all three of these uh, contribute to this very, very low frequency of errors. One one uh, mistake for every, approximately every 10 to the 10th nucleotides uh, replicated. So the first thing is I've pointed out to you several times that, that the AT, if you draw the hydrogen bonds between an A and a T base pair, the two hydrogen bonds, or the three hydrogen bonds between a G and a C base pair, that the shapes of, of this pair and that pair are virtually identical. You can pick them up, lay it right down on top. Now, if you actually look at it, you'll see you could draw some base pairs between, for example, a G and a T. In fact, you can draw two hydrogen bonds, which is the same as between an A and a T. But the one thing I hope you can see just from the shapes, even without being able to see the individual atoms, is that an AT, a GT base pair doesn't have the same shape as the correct base pairs. So when I showed you that little movie the other day, where this is the template nucleotide, this is the incoming nucleotide, and there's this alpha helix that's swinging up. What's happening in there is that the, the enzyme is checking the, whether the incoming nucleotide is the correct shape to go with the, with the base pair. And you can sort of see it's put it into a, flipping it right into a very narrow little slot in the, uh, in the, uh, in the enzyme. So it's not only asking for, for sort of hydrogen bonds, it's asking for the, sh the exact shape if you just did it by thermodynamic grounds, you'd make about one mistake in a hundred, because that's about the discrimination between the correct base pairs and some of these other ones. This works so well, you get more like one mistake in 10 to the fourth or 10 to the fifth. We're still quite a distance away from, um, from, uh, from the 10 to the 10th. But so this is one of the things. It's, it's looking for the, the correct shape of the base pair. Now the second uh, thing that helps with fidelity is a phenomenon known as a proofreading exonuclease. 
things called nuclease, uh, nuclease, that means it can degrade DNA. And the exo works at an end. And furthermore, this, the directionality of this uh, proofreading was something that puzzled people initially because it's going three prime to five prime. And when people started to purify DNA polymerases or complexes of DNA polymerases involved in replication, there seemed to be a puzzle because the polymerase, as I've told you, goes five prime to three prime, but it, the same uh, enzyme complex had an exonuclease that went in the opposite direction. So this seemed very peculiar at, at first, in the sense, if you were trying to polymerase DNA in this way, why in that same uh, enzyme would you have something that wanted to degrade DNA in the, in the other way? And the answer turned out that it was, this is uh, known as a proofreading exonuclease, as I put up here. And here's the principle of, of how it works. So suppose you were replicating the, the DNA and there was a G. And if you put a C in there, it very quickly goes on and continues the replication. If it puts in a T, let's say, this is not a very good uh, base pair. It wouldn't have the right shape. So when the enzyme came up looking for that 3' hydroxyl, which would be right at the end of that T, it's not, things are not in the right place. And so the polymerase activity slows down and as that primer terminus, if it sits there for a little bit, it's able to just peel off the DNA, flip up, and there's this function that, that does just what you'd do if you were typing and you made a mistake. You just hit the delete key and take off the last nucleotide that, that you did. I have a little movie showing you that. This is, um, this is a crystal structure. This is the DNA template. And the polymerase catalytic activity uh, site is right here. And it's in this little movie, it's just added an incorrect base pair. And the polymerase is sort of stalled. And the, the actual nuclease function is physically separate on the, on the protein structure. But what you'll see in the movie is that if the polymerase can't go very well, eventually this thing will come up and it'll chop off one nucleotide, come back and try it again. And you can, let's see, I think if we do this, uh, oops, a daisy. See if I can get this to work here. Um, nope, it's not working. Okay, well, anyway, I'm, I'm going to skip it for right now. I don't want to waste time. But in any case, the end would go up here and it would take off, take off one nucleotide. So there at least are two of the ways that uh, the polymerase is able to um, work with such fidelity. It, it, it selects for the correct base pair shape, and then after it's done an addition, it sort of looks back, just as if you were a very slow typist, and every time you, you type the letter, you look back and said, did I make a mistake? And if you made a mistake, then you delete it and just try again. And that gets the cell another maybe two orders of magnitude of accuracy. So it's, we're up to about one mistake in 10 to the seventh <coughs> base pairs replicated 
The third system, which is called mismatch repair, uh, turns out to be uh, very important for a whole variety of reasons. And before I tell you about it, I want to first introduce the idea of DNA repair in general. One of the things that's wonderful about DNA as you've learned, is it's got the information in two copies. It's in a complementary form, but it's like having the photograph in the negative. And if your kid sister pokes a hole of a pair of scissors through the picture of your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you're not really in trouble as long as you've got the negative, because you can get the information back again. Uh, and that same principle applies in DNA uh, repair. So if you have some kind of lesion in DNA, and this might have come from going outside in the, in the sunlight. Your DNA absorbs in the UV and it undergoes photoreactions that tend for the most part to just affect one of the two strands of DNA. Or uh, if you smoke, which I hope none of you do, um, there are many chemicals in smoke that will react with DNA and, if they, uh, and they'll modify one strand. And so what the, the cell has is a system there, what has many kinds of, of repair systems, but it has a, a special type of um, repair system known as nucleotide excision repair. And you could think of this as a protein machine that constantly scans the DNA looking for little distortions. And if it finds it, then what it needs to do is it needs to make cuts remove the DNA and make a little gap. And now you can see what it could do now. Once it's, it's got a little gap, the information over here is in a complementary form. So if a DNA polymerase were to come along, it could fill in that gap and seal it up, and then you'd back, be back to ordinary DNA. The lesion would be gone. And um, I made a little silly little PowerPoint thing here to show it. So if you were to say damage this guanine with something, say one of the carcinogens you find in cigarette smoke. You could think of this protein machine as being a sort of pair of, of scissors that, that have a conditionality in them. As this protein machine scans along the DNA, the scissors aren't activated until it recognizes there's a distortion, like here, at which point then it senses that there's some bump in the DNA. And it's very clever the way it does it because the nuclease activities, the things that are going to cut the DNA, are actually some distance away, a few nucleotides away from the lesion. So even if this is distorting the DNA, the scissors are able to work out here and out here. And it makes two cuts. That was a huge surprise. Nobody expected that when they started to do the biochemistry. And then, in principle, once you cut it, now you can remove this little nucleotide, and then a DNA polymerase can just come in and following those A pairs with T, G pairs with C, copy it along, and then would seal it up to get to the, to the end. And I've actually shown you a picture of what happens if a human is missing that system. When, when I was uh, showing you how profound an effect you could get from just losing one single gene or a mutation affecting one single gene. It's a disease called xeroderma pigmentosum. There are a variety of different groups and they 
uh, the one on the left is an example, that's someone who's missing one of the, the genes that encodes one of the proteins involved in nucleotide excision repair. And this is really, really important for fixing up this, the damage we get all the time in sunlight. So if you miss that repair system and you go out in the sun, then you get all kinds of lesions and people were, uh, are very susceptible to, to skin cancer. And I told you, fortunately now, you don't find people with this disease looking like that because we, at least in developed countries, we recognize that they're kept out of the sun. And this was the, the kids who I, I said are called children of the moon because they, for example, go to summer camps where they, where they do everything at night so they won't get exposed to, to sunlight. But that's, that's what happens uh, to us if we miss that excision repair. And again, what makes that possible is that the, damage, the, the information is there twice in in, um, uh, in a, in a double-stranded uh, DNA. I also showed you a little movie early on when I was showing you, um, I'm gonna actually show, run this in quick time because it, it works a little more smoothly, I think. Um, so I showed you this when we were talking about DNA because I wanted you to sort of get that sense of what it was like to kind of fly down the, the groove of a of a DNA. But what I didn't emphasize was this protein that was bound to the DNA. That's a protein that's a DNA repair protein and what it's, it's one of these things that looks for lesions in the DNA and as we fly along the major groove this little green thing is actually the lesion that that protein is looking for and it sort of puts fingers down into the groove and it's able to, um, to, to sense that and you can sort of see how this this protein is, is bound to DNA. This is a lesion that we get all the time from, from oxidative damage. And I said, remember I said oxygen's bad for DNA, so our bodies have to have uh, systems that are able to, to do that. So DNA repair is, is, uh, is very important for, um, for life. We'll just finish flying down the major groove one more time here. Okay, and I'll go back to PowerPoint. So there's mismatch repair is a form of repair that, that's got that same idea that, let's think about it, if we had a replication fork here, and let's say there was a G here, and a T got misincorporated, but in this case it wasn't removed by the proofreading, and the, which happens about one in 10 to the seventh times, now, if that strand is, uh, is fixed up, uh, excuse me, is, is continued, then you'd end up with a GT uh, base pair. And the next time you copied it, this strand might, would give rise to a GC, but this one would give rise to an AT. And then you'd have a mutation that now would have changed, and if it affected an important gene, that could be bad for you. So the cell has what's known as a mismatch repair, that works in exactly the same logic as here that basically comes along, it scans the DNA, it finds the, the bump, it makes, because this is not a proper base pair, and then it fills it in and you're back to ordinary DNA 
with a G C base pair. There's one little wrinkle. This cell, this, for this system to work, it has to do one other thing that's different from that kind of DNA repair. Can anybody see what it is? Why don't you talk to the person next to you, see if, see if you can figure out. There's, this system must be doing something else in order for this to work. Okay, you can ask somebody. What do you think? What if I what if I remove the G? Would that work? You got it. So what would happen if I took out the G instead? Say I made the little gap over on, on this strand instead. Cut it here. Yeah. So which one's the one that's right? The old strand or the new strand? The old strand, yeah. So see, this is the old, and this is the new. And the, the term that's usually used, it's known as the daughter strand, the new strand. So the other thing this, this system has to do is it not only has to be able to detect that there's an incorrect little base pair in there, but it also has to um, uh, know which is the parental strand, the template strand, and which is the daughter strand, the newly synthesized strand. And this system makes the assumption that the strand that's old is the one that's correct, and the mistake is on the new one. You guys see that? OK. So that gets another two or three orders of magnitude in accuracy, and that's what brings it up. Now, the, the people who made the, this, who, who formulated this, this model for mismatch repair, complete with the feature uh, that, it, that it needed to recognize the old and new strand. And that's a bit of a trick, if you think about it, because it's DNA on both sides. And there, there are several different ways used in nature, so I'm not going to go into it. But there's at least a couple of different ways of doing that trick. You could sort of see if you were the replication fork, and you talk to that. You could certainly, just from the geometry of that, if you wanted, you could probably keep track of who's old and new. E. coli has a, a very cute trick, but it's not universal, so I won't go into it. But the people who, who did the seminal stuff, um, I had to just quickly show you a couple of pictures. When I showed you that picture of, at the, D, the DNA 50th, the guy sitting in the front row was Miroslav Radman, who was one of the two people. He's a European scientist, originally from Croatia. And he collaborated with someone you've heard about before, Matt Messelson, uh, who was up at Harvard. And it was with the Messelson-Stahl experiment that showed the semi-conservative mechanism of DNA repair. This was a little reception. And Matt was talking to Alex Rich, who's one in the MIT biology department. And I was amused because remember how um, Vernon told you how Francis Crick would run up and down the stairs uh, at the, in the Cambridge lab and he was talking all the time and I've heard Vernon say you could never really tell whether an idea came from Watson or Crick because we just talk, 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 talk all the time. So this was at a sort of a nice reception at the, uh, at the DNA 50th and, and within a couple of minutes I looked over and there were Miriam Redman and Matt Messels and talk, talk, talk. They were over in the corner drawing pictures on a... On a uh, on a board. I also showed you actually a picture of one of the genes that's involved in recognizing this mismatch because there's a protein 
that recognizes that mismatch, and it's given the name of uh, MUDES. And when I was showing you some proteins that had one that had a lot of alpha helices, this is actually a picture of MUDES. It's a dimer. That's why some of it's green and some of it's blue. And it's recognized, this is DNA viewed end on, and it's recognizing a GT mismatch in DNA in that, in that picture. Now, this may sound very esoteric, you know, obviously important for life and an important part of, of, um, of uh, sort of understanding how, how life works if you're interested in studying molecular biology. It may not seem to have very much connection to your, to your real life. But in fact, in this case, mismatch repair does. And I, because it affects the frequency with which, if you lose it, then uh, when you replicate your DNA, you're going to make more mistakes. And I, I need to tell you, just to give you a very quick introduction to cancer so you can see why this is important. So cancer uh, comes from the fact that Remember, a human cell or a multi-cell with many, or with, um, like us, that has many kinds of different cells, starts out from one cell. And I talked about as we go, first you get the embryonic stem cells that become anything, and the cells become successively more and more and more specialized as they go along. So ultimately, a cell that's in your retina or in, the, say, the lining of your, your colon needs to know that's where it belongs, and it also needs to know that can't just keep replicating. So if this is actually showing a little picture of a lining of your intestine, and you, there's a, a single layer of cells right along the, the edge of your, the inside edge of your intestine. This is the, the cells through which all the nutrient exchange happens and everything else when your body extracts uh, nutrients um, as, as food stuff passes through your, your, through your intestine. And so what happens with cancer is a cell that's normally part of your body has to obey a whole set of rules. And what you can think of as when someone starts to develop cancer is that what started out as an ordinary cell undergoes some kind of changes, successive changes in its DNA that gradually causes it to forget the rules that make it be part of an organized body system. So if we take a look here, so there are all these different cells, but let's imagine just one of them gets a change that makes it forget to stop, or it should know that it'll start to stop replicating when it touches its neighbors. But if a cell were to lose that control, what would happen? Well, it would then begin to, to proliferate. And then what happens in cancer is the cell will, now there are more of them, and one cell will acquire an additional mutation will lead to a further loss of growth control. You can see now the cells are starting to become sort of funny shapes. And then it'll so one of the cells in here will undergo yet another change. And right at this point, up till now, the cancer has, even though the cells have, are dividing um, and have lost uh, some of their growth control, they're still staying in the same place. So that would be sort of you know, like a ward or something like that, or what you would hear as a benign tumor. You can go in surgically and take it away. But then the other thing that can happen is cells can forget where they're supposed to be in the body. And when that happens, they, they say the cells metastasize or become metastatic or malignant tumor. 
And what that means is the cell is beginning to, it's acquired yet another change that's made it forget which part of the body it's supposed to be in, and they've signified it here as being a, a change in the cell that then leads to, you can see here now it's starting to invade into the, the whole intestine, or if one of those cells comes off loose in your bloodstream, it can land somewhere else in your body and then start to grow, grow there, and that's what happens when somebody has metastatic cancer, it's some, you can't really cure it because now there's cells, cancer cells all over the body and, and the, that usually is, is a very difficult situation to get any kind of cure on. So to put this in, <clears throat> in perspective, you needed to have a number of changes to go from an ordinary cell to uh, a metastatic cancer cell. So each one of these changes, there was some kind of change in the DNA. Either there was a mutation or maybe a chromosome was lost or something like this. So that you need a series of successive genetic um, alterations. So there was a very key insight uh, that a number of people had after we understood the mechanism of uh, mismatch repair. Because people realized, some people realized that if a human cell had lost uh, mismatch repair, then the frequency of each one of these changes would go up. It wouldn't affect what the change was. It wouldn't actually have anything to do, if you lost mismatch repair, it wouldn't affect uh, directly the ability of this cell to forget um, to stop dividing when it touches its neighbors, but it would increase the, the chances that a mutation somewhere would have that, that effect. And if every one of these steps goes now a hundred or a thousand times faster, you can see that if somebody loses mismatch repair in a cell, then the chances of that cell coming into a uh, cancer are very high. So there was a, um, a kind of human cancer, it's a susceptibility to colon cancer, it's called hereditary non polyposis colon cancer. You don't need to remember the name. It's often abbreviated HNPCC for people who, can, who can't remember the name. But it was a kind of uh, can, susceptibility to cancer that ran in families, so it was thought to be genetically determined in some way. And one of the interesting things was a number of the people who had this disease would show a kind of instability of the genome in the, if they looked in the tumors. They just looked at the DNA. It seemed to be undergoing changes at much faster rate. And the insight that came out was that the, the people who um, had this disease had, for example, mutation affecting what we can think of as a human homologue of MUTE-S. And we'll talk about uh, genetics of humans and other uh, in, a, in a small number of weeks, but I think most of you know that we, for most genes, except for the genes associated with the sex chromosomes, you get one copy of a gene from mom and another copy of a gene from dad. So under no, most circumstances, we would have two good copies of this gene encoding a human homologue of MUTE-S. What does that human homologue of MUTE-S does the same thing as the bacteria. It recognizes a mismatch in, in DNA and uh, fixes it up. So 
it turned out that what the people with this um, disease have is they have one of the genes, the gene they got from mom or the gene they got from dad, is broken. So they're still okay. They have one copy of mismatch repair in every cell. But if a cell ever had lost that copy of the second, uh, uh, lost the copy of the good version, now that cell and all of its descendants would mutate at something like a hundred or a thousand times the, the uh, normal probability. And so they would progress down this pathway. And so the polyposis means that if they look in the, in the, in the uh, colons of people who have this disease, they find lots and lots of little uh, growths or polyps that are on their way to progressing down this uh, disease. Uh, even in these people, uh, it takes quite a while. And uh, so once they knew that, they're able to go in and through colonoscopies find these uh, cancers and remove them. And uh, most of you will not have that disease, but uh, this is now a kind of cancer that's pretty much preventable as long as it gets detected. It can take, in a normal person, as long as 20 years or something for an initial cell that underwent this initial change to go all the way down to becoming metastatic. So when you get older, and this is certainly applies to most of you, your parents are in this age group, uh, they should, you should ask them if they've had a colonoscopy. It's not <laughs> the world's most fun procedure because you know, they stick a probe and look inside your intestine, but it isn't that bad. And if they, when, what they do is if they see one of these little polyps, they can catch it before it's progressed far enough to be metastatic and then there's no problem. I had my first one done about, I don't know, three or four years ago and they found one and they took it out and I'm, I'm fine. But if it had been left there and it allowed to progress, then some years down the line I would have gotten colon cancer and I'm gonna have to go back and get checked again in another year or two. But it is um, something that you should, you should check with your parents because everybody should have have a colonoscopy. My hope is by the time you guys reach an age where this comes, they'll probably have some kind of little blood test or something where you won't have to go through this uh, indignity. But right at the moment, it's, it's, it's something everyone should do, I think. Um, I just wanted to make one other comment about basic research, because there's another thing here. I was actually, my lab was the first lab to clone the MUTE-S gene. We cloned it, we sequenced it, and we looked in the databases, and at that time, uh, in the late 80s, there was nothing else that looked like it. I thought it would be like, there were some sort of similar mutants. You, um, and here's what it looked like. This is a, a culture of E. coli. And I've just, they're about 10 to the ninth cells per mil. And we played it about 10 to the ninth or 10 to the eighth on a plate with a drug on it. And you can see they almost all died, but there were maybe three or four that survived and then they were, their descendants were able to grow up and form a colony. This is how we recognized something was uh, defective in what we now know as mismatch repair. If you took this, this mutant of E. coli and plated it out, you see you got a lot more drug-resistant colonies. That's the difference that I was describing you, the importance of mismatch repair. If you don't have mismatch repair, you can see you get a lot more mistakes that show up as, as mutants. So I was studying that and uh, we cloned the MUTE-S and MUTE-L genes, which is another gene that's involved in this. Didn't see anything in the database, but there were very similar 
mutants um, in Streptococcus pneumoniae that people had isolated. Remember Streptococcus pneumoniae in the transformation experiments? So I thought, well, maybe these are the same genes on an evolutionary basis. So I phoned some labs and I found one that was sequencing what turned out to be a homologue of, of MUTE-S. We tried to publish our papers in a, a medium fancy journal because I thought this was a pretty cool result that two bacteria that were evolutionarily very diverged had this conserved mechanism for mismatch repair. But uh, the reviewers said, you know, this is a pretty specialized topic. It's not of general interest. It should go in a the, the phrase they use is a more specialized journal. So it was published in Journal of Bacteriology, which is a really wonderful journal, but it basically deals with bacteria. And about a week after that paper came out, the, my phone rang, and it was a guy from Emory, and he said, hi, I work on mouse. We were sequencing a gene, doesn't matter what, and we sequenced in the wrong direction, and we seem to have a, something called MUTE-S. Do you know anything about MUTE-S? And a couple of days after that, I got a phone call from somebody at NIH, and they said, well, same thing. We were trying to sequence this gene in humans. We kind of sequenced in the wrong direction. We found MUTE-S. So within a, a week of the paper coming out, I knew there were mouse and human homologs. And that led from this identification, from these sort of studies, which my first graduate student worked on, to um, the identification of the human homologs, and then not me, but others made the connection between um, mismatch repair and cancer. But this is the way a lot of things happen with basic research. This doesn't look like anything that's very important, and it sure doesn't look like it's going to lead to an insight into cancer. But this is very much the way it goes. I've had this happen twice with another set of genes in my, in my life that turned out to be important for cancer as well. And as I said, what happens if you lose the mismatch repair, then all these alterations happen much more quickly and the cells can become cancerous. I, I, I've included a couple of outtakes because I actually made this slide on my, with my son's pillowcase on our, our dining room counter and my, our cats, who you, who you saw at some point earlier in the year, thought this was the weirdest thing they'd ever seen was when I brought these, these uh, plates home. So, Okay, anyway. All right, so... Um, one other uh, thing to tell you about DNA replication bef before I move on, and that is the initiation of, of DNA replication uh, in E. coli. The, there's one great big piece of DNA. And it's all one giant circular chromosome. And if you realize uh, what I've told you about DNA replication, I've talked to you only about once you have a replication fork established, how you, uh, how you keep it going. But as you might guess, a really important point of biological control is the initiation of, of DNA replication. And so the way cells do that is they have a, a special sequence in their DNA, it's written just with G's and C's and A's and T's, but it's, a, it's a, a word sort of written in a different language than the kind of genetic code we're going to be talking about in the next couple of lectures. And what it means is start replication here. And so in E. coli, it's called, an, these terms are called origin, DNA replication, 
And for example, in E. coli, it's about, about a stretch of DNA that's about 250 base pairs long, and it's got a sequence that lets proteins bind, and they kind of are able to make a little bubble like this, and it's at these the edges of this little bubble where it's able to start a uh, start a replication fork. And one of the secrets to control of cell division is that cells are able then to control whether the protein that sees the origin is there or not. And it won't start a new round of replication unless everything's right. Then it can make the things that initiate a new round, and after that, it finishes. We use uh, our eukaryotic cells with a lot more DNA. Use the same thing, same idea, but it tends to be there tend to be multiple origins, and you get a little bubble and another little one down here. And once you start get the replication forks established, then these kind of merge, and then eventually we end up with the two strands of of DNA. I just mentioned that in passing because. It's an example of how, even though the DNA is nothing but G's and C's and A's and T's, you can kind of write words in there that use, mean different things. Some of them in genetic code tell you what amino, order of amino acids in the cell, but everything else has to be encoded in the DNA too. And here's a really nice example of how that, that works. Now, we're going to switch at this point from worrying about how DNA replication is, is replicated to um, how, it's, uh, how information is stored and interpreted. And there's a figure that most of you have probably seen that DNA goes to RNA, goes to protein. This is the usual direction of information flow. The information for making proteins is encoded in the DNA, as we'll talk about in more detail. An RNA copy of some piece of that, one gene's worth, usually gets made in RNA. And then that information in the RNA is used to direct the sequences of uh, amino acids that appear in a, in a protein. And this is, this is a four-letter alphabet, if you want to. A, G, T, and C. This is a four-letter alphabet. A, G, U, and C, where the uracil and the, and the um, thymine have the same base pairing capacity. And this is a 20-letter alphabet. all those 20 amino acids that you were looking at at the chart of at the back of, at the, back of the exam. So from a point of view of, of information storage and information flow, there's some interesting things that had to, had to come up in order for the information to flow in that way. But before I do that, <clears throat> I want to just uh, get you to think about DNA as an information storage device. This is MIT. I'm almost surely, sure in this room there's some people that are experts in high-density information storage. And even if you're not, most of us have now a lot of experience with it. Your computer can do gigabytes of information. Your iPod probably has a, 
a 40 gigabyte hard drive in it or something like that. So you have some experience with, with high density information storage. So here's, here's the thought. How much DNA would it take, or the question, how much DNA would it take to encode everybody who's alive on Earth today? Six billion and a bit people? And let's argue that all we need is a single cell's worth of DNA because everybody started out as a single fertilized egg and went on. So, yeah? One person? I mean, enough DNA to fill one human being. Okay, enough DNA to fill one human being. Anybody else got any sense? Right, this is, I think, the most amazing demo. I, I did this when I was teaching for the first time, but the amount of DNA it would take to encode everybody who's alive on Earth, one cell of everybody who's alive on Earth today, is this little thing in here, which you probably can't see even, but I took a picture of it. There's about 6 times 10 to the minus 12 grams of DNA in a human cell. And there, you multiply that out by 6 billion uh, people, and it comes out to... 36 milligrams of, of DNA, and I weighed out 40-some milligrams of DNA. So there's actually more DNA there than you need to encode everybody who's alive on Earth today. And I don't know how this hits you, but I've been teaching, working on DNA my entire life. And when I, every time I do this, I think I, you know, I, think I understand this molecule, but I... I don't really think I do <laughs> at some more fundamental level. It's absolutely amazingly amazing uh, how much information is stored in, in that molecule. So, um, the one uh, thing, point I will um, actually, I think it's. It's close enough. Why don't we just call it a day and I'll, I'll pick this.